All right, tell me, tell me what you've liked or found interesting so far about Revelation. What's, what's been uh, maybe different than you expected or exactly what you expected? What's, it, what's been your kind of thought process? Not bad so far. Yeah, the description Christ gives at the beginning. Um, one of the things that, and we'll talk a little bit about this tonight as well, is trying to ask yourself the question, you know, one of the things that we talked about on our Sunday night Bible study with the parables is that Jesus often used the parables to give different understandings of the story. Uh, the different characters were different understandings of the story. And that one of the ways you can read the parables is to ask, how do I relate to every character in the story? So the prodigal son, how do I relate to the prodigal son? How do I relate to the older brother? How do I relate to the servants in the story? How do I do that? I think reading through these churches, you can ask the question, how do I in my life relate to what was happening in that church? And so not just, oh, that's an interesting thing about that church, but how does that relate to me, okay, in my relationship with the Lord? Well, tonight we're going to talk about what is perhaps the most preached passage in Revelation. Uh, it is the passage that uh, my guess is this, or the description of the Ephesian church, is the most preached passages in Revelation. And this one, because there's a very graphic image in the middle of it that makes it interesting to read. All right? And what we're going to see tonight is what I call the repulsive church. Um, the condition of this church was nauseating, made God ill, sick to his stomach. They were a little too cold to be hot and a little too hot to be cold. A little too bad to be good and a little too good to be bad. They neither loved God fervently nor hated Him zealously. They were lukewarm, moderate, indifferent, neutral, complacent, self-satisfied, and it made God sick. The church at Laodicea. God is displeased with a church that is happy with itself, happy where it is, and happy with what it's done instead of looking to what he wants to use them to do. Um, the Tennessee Baptist Convention's happened this week, and Alan was there first part of the week, and I was there today. I didn't see you there today, Alan. I don't when went there today. So we, we took turns. I was in Knoxville yesterday for a funeral. Um, and so uh, I went today, and there was a... The beginning of it was really good. There was a lot of good good stuff and lots of good... Um, there was a good sermon this morning. Ed Stetzer, who works at Lifeway, did a great job talking about the future and how we move forward together and what it looks like and the changing environments that we have and the changing people groups that are all around. In Nashville alone, there are close to 100 different people groups living in Nashville. About 80 of them don't have any church for their people group, their language. And so the world is coming to us, and we have to be a little more... Uh, we have to think differently about how we're doing missions. The, the reality is it, Southern Baptists for a long time have done missions in North America to people like us and internationally to wherever we go instead of doing missions to large and different groups in America. And so today we had a great beginning, and then the business part of it turned to let's remind everybody what we're against. We had this great discussion about what's good, what's looking forward, how we can move forward, how we can reach people for Christ. And then it was almost as if, all right, that's good, but let's remind everybody what we're against here. And so there were three or four motions in a row that were just 
uh, that were just kind of, why are we doing that? There's no, that doesn't serve any purpose. And the last one that they did was a, a, one, a motion. It was a resolution to tell the president of the Southern Baptist Convention to stop the name change thing. Okay? Now, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but they've started a study. That's, that's all it is. It's not, it's not, they're not changing the name. They're not requesting they change it. They have no power to do that. They're going to study it. Okay? The reason is there are people, some people that I know, very, I mean, good friends of mine, that are in parts of the country that if you tell them you're Southern Baptist, they tell you you need to just go back. Because why would you be Southern and come to New Hampshire? Uh, Freddie T. Wyatt, who is the pastor of the church we worked with at New York City, he, he, if he tells them he's Southern Baptist, they turn away and don't even think about it. Because, well, why would we want somebody Southern telling us what to do? So they're just going to study whether or not it is something for us to consider. Well, the Tennessee Baptist Convention felt it necessary to tell them, we like it just the way it is, don't even think about studying it to determine if it would be more effective in reaching people with the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not necessarily for changing the name. I like Southern, I've been Southern Baptist all my life. I, I grew up around people, one of the fr- jokes my uh, one of my granddad's friends used to say, you know what I'd be if I wasn't Southern Baptist? I'd be ashamed is what I'd be. I mean, you know, I mean, it just, uh, I've been all that, you know. And so I'm not necessarily for it. But to say that, what, if you look at the statistics, we're losing the battle. On a national level, Southern Baptists are losing the battle, which means that something's not going right. And I'm for figuring out whatever's not going right and let's do whatever we need to do to reach people with the gospel of Christ. But there's some, and the way it was, the argument was couched was let's just go back to where we were. Well, the world's not. And so we can't. And Jesus is going to talk to a church that was resting on its laurels, if you will. That was resting on what it had done. One pastor wrote this, No church has ever arrived this side of the coming of the Lord, yet too many appear to be consumed with one passion, maintaining what they have. Satisfied with their past, they're content with their present. Vance Havner, who was a great pastor in the 20th century, said a church like that always needs a revival. And so Jesus is going to talk to a church today that was in need of a revival And what I want us to do is to ask the question, is this true in our own lives? Revelation 3, 14 says this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Verse 17. Because you say I'm rich, I become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't know that you are wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you may be rich, and white clothes, so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes, so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be committed and repent. Listen. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. 
the victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory, sat down with my father on his throne. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We're going to talk tonight about four things. And one of the things I want you to realize quickly is that almost every one of these churches, he always starts with a depiction of who he is, Christ, and then he tells them something good they're doing. Well, the church at Laodicea, he starts with a picture of who he is, but there's nothing good that they're doing. He jumps from his description to challenging them. First thing we see here is that Christ is characterized by his dependability. His dependability. We see here for the last time the angel of the church and Laodicea in these letters to the churches, the messenger, the representative of the congregation or the assembly. He wants them to write these things. It's urgent. It's authoritative. And this is what he wants them to do. He wants them to write to the church at Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was located in between two cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. Now, where do we know Colossae from? Colossians. Paul wrote a a book to the Colossians, and it was uh, it was near Laodicea. Laodicea was approximately 300 miles from Athens, 600 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and two major trade routes intersected at it. It was known for a lot of things, and this is interesting. I want you to um, just kind of be looking at verse 17 around there while I describe to you what it was best known for. It was best known as a wealthy commercial center the riches in that area, known for banking, manufacturing of fine clothing, and a famous medical school with specialized ointments for the ears and allowed people to see better. Now, what does Jesus say about the condition of the church? He says, you think you're rich, but you are wretched, poor. What were they known for? Banking, being wealthy, poor. Naked, they were known for making some of the finest clothing, and blind, and they were known for their eye balm. The city was so wealthy that you, we've talked about earthquake and now that Rome had to help rebuild. This city, when the earthquake hit in A.D. 60, it rebuilt without any assistance from anywhere. The Roman historian Tacitus said, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. They saw themselves as self-sufficient. The church kind of went into that. They didn't need the help of anyone, including God. They were fine by themselves. They had pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. They could do it on their own. They, there was nothing they couldn't conquer. There was nothing they couldn't do. Whatever the challenge was before them, they could do it without anybody helping. But the city had one major weakness. It didn't have an adequate or convenient water supply. There was a six-mile-long aqueduct that brought water in. It either came from hot springs, and as it got closer to the city, it became lukewarm, or it came from a cold spring, and the closer it got to the city, it became lukewarm. In fact, there are historical depictions that in Laodicea, when visitors would drink the water for the first time, they would almost always spew it out of their mouths. The Bible doesn't reveal when or how the church began. Most believed it was started by Epaphras, whom Paul may have evangelized in his third missionary journey. There's no evidence that Paul visited the church, but he did write them a letter. In Colossians 4.15, it mentions it. 
That letter has apparently either been lost to us, we just don't have it, it's one of Paul's letters we don't have, or it, he's referring to Ephesians, that was a letter that was to be circulated around those churches, kind of like Revelation. So that's what the church was like, or the culture in which it found itself. So what do we learn here about Christ? We talked about his dependability. Well, here's what we learn. We learn that you can trust what he says. It calls him the Amen. All right? Now, here's the thing. If somebody ever asks you if you know any Greek, I don't know why anybody would ever ask you that, but if they do, you tell them you do. Because Amen comes from Greek, and in the Greek it is Amen. Amen. You just took that word straight there. And what it meant was truly, correctly, assuredly, valid, verily, absolutely true. That's why, that's where the tradition is sometimes, and I emphasize the word sometimes in this congregation, people will say amen. And it means that's right or keep going or that's true or I agree. And that's what it means. And Jesus says, I am the amen. And that means that he is trustworthy, he is reliable, he is certain, he is true to reality. Not only is he the amen, he is the faithful and true witness. He is reliable. He, he is the stark contrast to what they are. He is reliable, they are not. He is faithful, they are not. He is the true witness. They have no witness at all. You may not trust the words and the actions of Laodiceans, but you can trust what Jesus says every time. Not only can you trust what he says, you can trust what he starts it says here that he is, and the Holman Christian Standard uses the word, the originator. Other translations will use the beginning of the creation of God. The idea is people say, and there were these people all around that were saying, you know what, he is, he is, um, there was this heresy around that Jesus had been born just like all of us. Now that's not a new heresy. That was back when these days of John, but it also remains today. Two of the biggest groups, religious groups in America teach that, Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons. They teach that God was not always a father, that there was a time when he became the father of Jesus because there was a time when Jesus was not there. That was what was being taught. And to that church, he says, I have always been there. So he says that you can trust me. Secondly, we see here that Christ condemns those who are deceived. Deceived. When Jesus examines the church, he sees nothing to praise or commend, not a single thing. Everything is a stench to his nostrils, a pain to his heart, nauseating to his stomach. The crazy thing is they didn't realize it. I mean, you would think a church that's that repulsive to Jesus must know that they're that repulsive to Jesus, but it says they don't realize it. Two indications serve as warnings. First of all, they were indifferent to their spiritual condition. This is where it talks about the hot and cold. Now, let me just say, this is perhaps a verse that is used in a wrong way as much as any verse in Scripture. Philippians 4.13 is right there. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People say, you know, I mean, people use that for football games. I can go knock out the guy across the place. Hendersonville and Beach play this Friday, is that right? You know, small game, 
Is it quarterfinals yet or 16? Eight. Eight. Okay. Quarterfinals. Hendersonville plays Beach. And there's a chance that both teams, well, maybe not because they're in Sumner County and they might get sued, but there is a chance that used to, they would say, I can do all, we can beat Hendersonville High School. Through Christ who strengthens me. And on the other locker room, we can beat Beach. Through Christ who strengthens me. That, that's misuse. This one's misuse. People say, see, it would be better if you're not going to be very devoted to Christ. Just don't be anything at all. Christ would rather you be completely cold to Him than be lukewarm. Now, what we have to remember is that description of the problem they had with lukewarm water. And in one city in particular, in Heropolis, they had hot water. These springs would come up and the water was hot. And when it was hot, they could use it for medicinal purposes. It could use for healing. They could help people, all right? And so they were useful as hot water. In Colossae, the water was really cold. And it was useful because it was pure. It was refreshing. They could use it for different things. Jesus looks at Laodicea and says, you're not like Hierapolis or Colossae. You're good for nothing. You're not doing anything. You're not effective in any way. And he looks at him and says, if you don't repent... I will, and the literal Greek word is vomit you out of my mouth. Now, there are very few things in life more repulsive than vomit. That's an amen statement right there, right? Luke decided I needed some sermon research last night. And about 12 or 12.15, I heard... Luke, you okay? I don't know. You going to get sick? Let's get up now. <laughs> and we made it to the bathroom. We didn't make it to the place in the bathroom we wanted to make it to, but we made it at least to the bathroom. And at 1 o'clock last night, on my hands and knees, with the Clorox and the paper towels, I was thinking, Lord, I really didn't need a full reminder of how disgusting this is. But Jesus says that when your life is lukewarm, just kind of committed, not really seeking what I desire, that is what you are like to me. Don't be ignorant, he says, of your condition. Here's the thing. They said, we're rich, we're good, we got everything we need. And all the while, they were poor. They were hurting. He looked at him. he says, you say I have become wealthy. The idea there is we have had success. The, the word itself means there has been a time in our past when we have done things that have brought us success, and now we're going to rest on what we have become. And... We don't need anything. That's a present tense verse. That means continually. He says, it's just like your city. You brag about the fact, well, we did this all on our own. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it reminded me reading some of the background material. Do you remember when the flood happened a couple of years ago? 
Do you remember how Nashville had this Nashville pride about it? We did this on our own. We didn't need y'all here. Anderson Cooper, you didn't come till day eight. That's okay. You get this sense that the church is, is that way. And, and from an American standpoint, that's the ultimate thing. We did it on our own. From a church perspective, that's the worst thing you can think. Because they were doing it on their own. And you can only do on your own what you can in your strength do. And to do what God intends for you to do is God-sized task. I was talking, I had breakfast with a pastor today, and we were talking through some things. And it's a church that I know. And he says, you know, he, he, he's asking them to step forward and to do some things. He says, and that they can't figure out exactly how it's going to work. And he said, that bugs them because they've always had it all figured out before they ever stepped out. He said, and I've told them, that's not faith. That's figuring it out on your own. And then saying, we can do it. The people in Laodicea thought, we got it made. There's no need of anything. We've got everything we need. But Jesus looks at them and says, you are deceived. You say, well, I'm rich, but you're not. And then he gives them five things that they are. He says, you're wretched. You're unfortunate. You're, you're like a ravaged land. You're like a devastated country. You're like a country that has been pillaged. You are miserable. You are people to be pitied. You are to be the object of extreme pity. People always look at you and go, wow, you are poor. Poor as a beggar or a pauper. It was a slap at a city that bragged of its wealth and its banking. You were blind. It was a slap at a city that prided itself on its famous school of ophthalmology, on its famous Phrygian eye powder that was worldwide known to be able to help people see. He says you were naked. It was a slap at a city that boasted of glossy black wool. He was saying, you think you have all this, and yet you are nothing. Remember the kid's story, the emperor's new clothes? Remember that? He wants new clothes. He's going to show everybody his new clothes. There's only one problem. What's that? He's naked. Right. Good Mississippi term right there. Naked. Louis Grizzard's the one that says, naked means you ain't got any clothes on. Naked means you ain't got any clothes on. You're up to something. Alan didn't think I'd quote Louis Grizzard, but I did. <laughs> we like Louis a little bit. <laughs> but he gets this picture of that, you know, that king, the, the image in that children's book. It's kind of a strange children's book, just to be honest with you, right? About a naked king walking down the street. But the image is he's walking proudly because he thinks, I am wearing the best clothes imaginable, and he's just naked. Jesus looks at his church and says, you're prancing down the street like you've got the world on its leash, and you're naked, poor, pitiful, blind, and wretched. My biggest fear for the American church is that we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to be next to our brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the world, and we're going to talk about how great our buildings were and how great our programs were and how much money we invested and yet the Lord's going to say, yeah, but a lot of that time you were naked, poor, pitiful, blind, and wretched. Vance Havner, I've already mentioned, said this. 
Smyrna was a rich, poor church. Laodicea was a poor, rich church. They were blind. They were short-sighted. They had no vision of God, of their own hearts, or of the world's need. And then he said, I'd rather be a rich, poor Christian than a poor, rich Christian. Following Christ is not a half-hearted John Walker, who we had here on a Sunday night, wrote um, Costly Discipleship, said, Jesus doesn't want you to be a good person. When He calls you to follow Him, He isn't asking you to become nice and do your best. He didn't die so you could feel good about the things you've messed up or so that you could carry a sentimental hope of being reunited beyond the grave. His call is a command for you to comprehensively, absolutely walk away from the way you do, new, you do life now so you can follow Him down an exclusive path through the narrow gate that leads to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, how is your life different? Other than you're sitting in a church right now than if you weren't a believer in Jesus Christ. Following Christ means dying to yourself, completely giving your life to God. It means that everything is on the table when it comes to following. That any decision that He calls on you and asks of you, you are willing to lay it out. Now you can obey or disobey the command to follow, but you can't negotiate the terms. Walker continues, he says, In our negotiations with Jesus, we fail to grasp that anything other than total obedience is disobedience. There's no middle ground. Our stalling, arguing, whining, ignoring are all forms of disobedience that leaves us in a state of perpetual immaturity. And you get this idea that in America we've created this system where we allow people to be part of the church but not passionately devoted followers of Christ. And those two things should never be separated. We have people who attend church because that's what you're supposed to do. They give money to charity or to the church as long as it doesn't kind of infringe on their standard of living. Uh, the guy I was talking to today at the church he said he went back into some archives, and they, they're, they're getting ready to do a building campaign as well, and we were talking through some of that. And they haven't, raised, they haven't started raising any money, and he was looking back through some of the history. And he said when they built the building there and now, 85 years ago, that people put second mortgages on their house to borrow the money to build the church. Yeah. I had stories of when this church was built, of people that didn't buy furniture for five years. And they said, today in America, finding believers who are willing to risk their own lives for the sake of the cause of Christ or for their local community of believers is getting fewer and fewer. They tend to choose what is popular over what is right. They desire to fit in both the church and outside the church. They're glad to be saved from the penalty of sin, but they're not really sorry for it. And don't hate it. They like hearing stories about people who do radical things for God, but they're not going to go there. They don't share their faith with their neighbors, co-workers, or friends. They're just worried about being rejected or making people uncomfortable. They feel good that they're probably morally better than most. They say they love Jesus, but He's only part of their life. They don't love Him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They'll serve God and others, but there are limits to how far they'll go and how much time and money and energy they'll spend. They care more about the life here on earth than the life that is to come and the decisions they make and the impact it has. They continually are concerned with playing it safe. 
They don't live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. They don't have to trust God if something unexpected happens. They have savings accounts. They don't need God to help them. They have a retirement plan. They don't generally seek out what God would have for them. They have figured life out and mapped it out. They don't depend on God on a daily basis. Their refrigerator's in full, and for the most part, they're in good health. The truth is their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. They may drink and swear a little less than the average, but besides that, they really aren't that different from your typical unbeliever. They equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness, but that is not what Jesus had in mind at all. Jesus is telling this church, I didn't die on the cross for you to live your life in a mediocre way. That wasn't the purpose of my death and my resurrection. We are to be consecrated and dedicated to God We should think, speak, design, and act with a view to His glory. We are not our own. Neither is our reason or our will or our acts or the things that we think. Let us make it our end to seek what we may be, to not seek what is agreeable to our carnal nature. Let us forget ourselves and the things that are ours. Let us live and die to Him. Let His wisdom and will preside over our actions. Let every part of our life be directed to Him. We need to become obsessed with living for the glory of the One who gave His life for us. That's what He's saying to the church at Laodicea. You are lukewarm. You have taken the radical nature of what I did for you and turned it into a lukewarm soup of nothing. What do we do about it? Christ gives them some things, and this is the third point. Christ counsels those who are deficient. He tells us, first of all, that we need His riches. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold or find in the fires that you may be rich. The idea there is the the riches that you have on this earth are no good. That when it comes to your eternal destiny, your eternal home with the Lord, when it comes to your eternal reward, the things that you have on this earth are absolutely no good. Well, you wouldn't believe that the way people act, would you? The stuff on this earth isn't any good. You have some people that act like they think if they get to heaven and he says, you're a little bit short here. Well, let me, how much is it going to cost me? Your money's not good here. You need Christ riches. He says, you can't buy your way out of this. I'm the one that can supply. I saw there's a new game show coming on around Christmas. I don't know if y'all have seen this. called You Deserve It. Uh, and the premise of the new game show is somebody's going to go and they're going to win money like every game show, but they're playing for somebody else that could never get the money on their own. And so when they win 150000 the show then takes them to the place and they take them into the living room and they say, this is yours. You deserve it. Now here's the thing. Christ has come into our lives and said, you don't have any money, your money's no good here, and you don't deserve it, but here it is. We need His riches. We need His righteousness. He says, you want white garments. They were known for black wool. They were known for fine black garments. He says, you need my white garments. In your nakedness, that nakedness is a sign of judgment and humiliation. He says, what you need is the fine white robes of righteousness that shows that you have been washed 
It doesn't matter what the outside states. It's what matters on the inside. Have you been washed? Laodicean Christians were spiritually naked, completely unaware of the humiliation and need for a pure white righteousness. One pastor says, Sometimes I fear that for all our Sunday finery and show, we are stripped naked before Him and exposed for who we really are. We need His righteousness. We need His restoration. He says you need to anoint your eyes so that you may see. It was famous for its Phrygian powder. The Laodiceans were blind to their spiritual condition. Only the great physician could deal with it. Honest evaluation is essential for restoration. Spiritual compromise and complacency are the spiritual cataracts that shut out the spiritual light. We need to ask Him daily to reveal our spiritual blind spots. I drove to Knoxville to say my uh, sister-in-law's dad passed away. Brian's wife's dad passed away. And so... I, Mom and Dad were going, and I told them I, I wanted to go with them, and they let me drive, which shows that either they think I've matured or they're losing their minds. We got in the car at my, at my house, and we started to drive. We live behind Publix over there. We turned right beside Publix, and before we got on the interstate, my mom put both feet through the floor mat and went, <gasps> And I said, Mom, we are about to drive for six hours today. That is not going to happen for six hours. Dad was in the back seat just laughing. She does it to me. She put, Mom, and Susan, somebody said, I told somebody that story before, Clay said, Susan does that. Susan does one foot. Mom lifted both feet and slammed both feet in. Scared me to death. I thought she was having a heart attack or something over there. Their car has this terrible blind spot. Now, it may be that my parents are both five, four, and under. And that car, you just can't ever get the seat right, you know, and you don't want to do it. And so there was a place, every time I looked, I thought I couldn't see what was there. You've had blind spots in cars, right? We have spiritual blind spots that we just don't see. We just don't see them. Here's the last thing in this little section. Or the last thing overall. Christ challenges those who need direction. Christ challenges those who need direction. By the way, number four in that list above is you need Christ's rebuke. We're just not going to be there. We're not going to take time. I know you've got to fill it in. I heard the discussion up here. Here it is. Verse 20 says this. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. Behold means to see, look, take notice. It says, I stand. It's that perfect tense again. That means that this is a position I have taken and I am firmly entrenched here. I will not move. I am ready at a moment's notice. When you are ready for revival to happen in your life, when you're ready to turn your life completely over to me, I am waiting on you. Then you have the image of the knocking. And what we see here is, you ever had somebody that when they come to the door, they knock till you get the door? Right? And after about the fourth or fifth one, it can become annoying. Especially if they're... The verb here, it says Jesus is knocking continuously. And then it says this. If anyone 
Now, there's debate over whether this is meant if any church or if this is any individual. I think it doesn't matter. I think there's a personal nature here. And the idea is if you want to experience life and follow me, then open the door. Now, it's going to mean getting rid of some ideas about what you've always thought. It's going to mean letting go of some comfort things you have. But if anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I'm coming in. Now, what does he say he's going to do with them? He's going to eat with them. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about on Sunday morning how important that was in their society. It was the ultimate sign of friendship and hospitality and love. You ate together. And then he says, not only that, but you can reign with me. I'm going to put them right there, let them sit down, just like I did when I defeated the grave. We finished the seven churches. And these are some lessons we've learned. A church or a Christian must be careful not to lose their first love, like Ephesus had. It must trust God in the midst of suffering, like Smyrna did. It must not compromise its doctrine, like Pergamum had, or its morality, like Thyatira. It must be on a guard against spiritual deadness, like Sardis, or walk through open doors for sharing the gospel, like Philadelphia, and avoid at all costs becoming lukewarm in its passion for Jesus, like Laodicea had. Revival is something that's talked about a lot in our country. It's an individual matter. God deals with people one person at a time. And sometimes, like Laodicea, we have everything in our life and our church except the Lord. God forbid that would be true of us, of you, of me. I've mentioned Vance Havner a couple of times. He had some great comments on this particular passage of Scripture. And this is what he kind of ends with. He just put it and said, The big question today is not, is God speaking? The big question today is, are you listening? Because God's speaking.